Morning. So very glad to be with you guys. And uh, it appears our time will be coming to a close here soon. And I had no idea that when I committed to you guys really almost a year ago uh, that I would still be here. So um, maybe maybe you wouldn't have a pastor yet, but maybe you would have run me off by then. I don't know. Um, but I'm, I'm so happy to be with you guys and so thankful for you. So maybe I'll save some of that for uh, the last time I preached to you guys, uh, which assuming will be in the next couple months. Uh, but let's open our Bibles today to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're not going to read the whole chapter, uh, but I'm going to read a significant portion of it. So hopefully you have brought your Bible today. doesn't matter what version you're, you're carrying with you. It'll all make sense in the end. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have that younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church be not burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. In 1812, Adoniram Judson and uh, five other people, uh, two other couples, so Adoniram and his wife and two other couples, set out from New England to much fanfare. Uh, back then, church people weren't on the fringes, but missionaries, they were the rock stars of the faith. And these were some of the first ones leaving the shores of America to go to a foreign land. And so they left on a ship with many people waving goodbye and happy for them and excited for the stories that they would tell from some distant land. But it wouldn't take long for that six people to dwindle down. As, as, they, as they were leaving America, uh, one woman died on, on the ship. They had just gotten married right before they had gotten on the ship, and she died before they ever made it. And they 
made it to India, and in India, they lost another person until eventually there were just four of them left. And it was in Burma that Adoniram Judson, his wife, and two other missionaries lived together. They were the only Christians in the entire land. There were no other people. And people had actually told them they were crazy for going to Burma because no one has ever had success in Burma. Anyone who had ever gone there before had left immediately, feeling like the, the, the ground was just too hard and rocky to till. But it wasn't long after being there about a year that the other missionary couple with the Judsons uh, had also left. They had abandoned it all. And, and after shortly after that, even those two missionaries had passed away, leaving only Adoniram and his wife to do the work of ministry in Burma by themselves. And it was in this time, in these first few years, when they saw no converts at all, no one coming to Christ, that they, they despaired the most. And, 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 and it was in their loneliness and in this time by themselves when the missionary society was trying to find someone else to go and to do the work of ministry with them, it was in this time that they had their deepest fits of despair because they were Christians by themselves. And that is not how the Lord designed His church to work. And many times they almost gave up. But praise the Lord, they stuck it out and they stayed for many years. Judson ended up having two wives die in Burma, 13 children die in Burma. And it was only because of the faithfulness of the believers around him that he was able to go on. And that's where I see this scripture today. It is in this scripture today, brothers and sisters, that I see more than word of widows, but I see something deeper than that. And I see in here discipleship. It is in the Bible uh, that we can be certain of one thing that it claims, and that is that God is good. Is that not what gets you out of bed a lot of mornings? Just the, the knowledge that, that God is good? And, and, and that goodness is central to upholding the message of Scripture, that you serve a good God in spite of the weight of the world on your shoulders, in spite of the evil that may be happening, in spite of calamity like, like terrorism and hurricanes, you still serve a good God. And it is important to understand that God is good enough brothers and sisters, to judge sin, to uphold his holiness, in his goodness, he will confront wickedness with real, just, and eternal consequences. That's true of the scriptures. His, his holiness demands that he take action against wickedness. And a lot of times we think about God and we think he, he, he can do everything. He can do anything. I have to hold this. I think it's got some static. He can do anything, brothers and sisters. 
But, but there is one thing that God cannot do, and that is go back on his word. So there are things he cannot do. He cannot be evil. He cannot commit acts of sin himself. And he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That's the truth of the scriptures. And this is why, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, he died on the cross. It was necessary that Christ would die for your salvation. There was no other way but that he die on the cross. And, and if we acknowledge that there was some other way for Jesus Christ or, or for God to save you, then we have diminished the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was Jesus who took the Father's just wrath so that you and I wouldn't have to bear it. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. And so when I think about that message, I think it only seems reasonable that we would throw ourselves at that truth, that we would throw ourselves at that message. And yet still, there are billions of people in this world, brothers and sisters, every day who know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they would still rather, they would still rather just take it on on their own, bear their sin on their own. See what will come for them in eternity on their own. And brothers and sisters, I know that in a crowd of this size, that there are some of you who are going to chance it on your own. That you may be caught up in this church culture, but you are not caught up in this man called Jesus Christ. And you are chanting it and seeing if you can bear the wrath of God by yourself. And yet you know the truth. That is the gospel message, brothers and sisters. That some will feel the weight of God's holiness in a very fearful way. And yet others will fear the weight of that holiness in a life-giving, joyful way. And so we come today to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And uh, it's in this gospel reality that that we as the church, uh, we must spur each other on towards holiness. I read a book several months ago, actually before it was released. It's kind of like for a seminary guy to read a book before it's released. That's like the ultimate in nerd. Like, you know, uh, you get an author's book before it's released, theology book. It's like, I'm someone special, you know. And uh, one of my favorite authors and pastors, name's Mark Dever, he wrote a book called Discipling. And I have it in PDF form, you know, it wasn't in print yet. And he said of discipling that to disciple other people is to commit to do spiritual good to others. It's that simple. Nothing, nothing deeply theological about that, that definition, right? Just committing to do spiritual good to other people. And that, brothers and sisters, is what underlies Paul's instruction here in 1 Timothy 5. And, and that's really what has been discussed throughout the book. And, you know, I, I, when, I, when I think about that, I think that our spiritual lives, they don't, they don't merely play themselves out just in our minds. This faith is not merely something that is, that is intellectual, that, that we read the Bible and we pack in this knowledge and we think about it as a philosopher would, and that's as far as it goes. But rather, this faith is something that, that, is, that is, it is actionable, and, and it, is, it is something that we can do with it. From the realities of our faith, brothers and sisters, we produce fruit and good works. And that's, that's where we're getting at in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We often think of, 
of, of, of our, our relationship with God is something that's merely vertical. It's between he and I. It just goes straight up. That's how our faith, we often think of it. It's just a straight up thing. And oftentimes, that's how we sing our music. Just straight up to God, right? But we forget that, that there's also a, a, a horizontal element to our faith. There's a community aspect to our faith. Brother uh, William, would you be able to give me a handheld? I'll, I'll still speak. There, there's, a, there's, there's a community aspect to our faith. Good? Beautiful. I can hear it, so it's distracting me. There's a, we, we think of our faith as, as something merely vertical, but brothers and sisters, there's something deeper to it than that. There is, there's a, a, a horizontal aspect to our faith. And this morning, just coincidentally, uh, uh, Alan was having a conversation with someone in the back that these chairs seem turned in a little bit. Like they, and I walked in this morning and thought these chairs seemed at a little bit of a different angle. Anyone, have, anyone else noticed that this morning? I noticed it, yeah. But it's a beautiful thing because, you know, if you walk into a lot of old churches, you notice the pews are, well, they're 50s, 60s style churches straight, right? We're just looking straight ahead. But if you walk into old 1800s style churches, curves, curves. And that's not accidental. That wasn't just the style of the day. It's because the people building these churches were theological in their thinking in the sense that they knew that that our faith is communal and that we will, as we sing these words to the Lord, look each other in the eyes and we will exhort and we will encourage each other while we sing these words. And as we sing things like on Christ, the solid rock, I stand no, all other ground is sinking sand. We will look each other in the eyes and remind each other of that fact. That Christ is the solid rock. And we can have hope in Him. That is, brothers and sisters, what, what we are getting at here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. That our faith isn't intellectual, it's not merely vertical, but that it is horizontal. And that we have relationships with co-workers, spouses, children, and our faith is meant to play out with those people. And that, brothers and sisters, is one of the primary reasons why we show up to church. We don't just watch it from a distance, but we show up. And, and this building is a place that facilitates a conversation about our faith where we can uplift each other and build each other up. And I, I happened to notice this morning, and, and, I, and I will just kind of call you out on this a little bit, you guys. I noticed the attendance for last week. There were 80 people in attendance and 20 people in Sunday school. That means 60 people did not show up and take advantage of the opportunity to uplift, build each other up, encourage each other, exhort each other, as First Timothy chapter 5 says. And we can do better than this. You know, I'm sure you've heard a lot of people say things like, you know, hey, this faith is mine. I don't, have to, I don't have to go to church to practice this faith. They say, I can worship God so much better sitting on a mountaintop on a Sunday morning, reading a book, or I can worship God so much better sitting on the beach, listening to the waves crash, just worshiping God through nature by myself. I'm sure you guys have heard that. 
Maybe you've been at points in your faith walk where you've said that sort of thing. But that's missing the point that this is not a personal faith. You know, oftentimes we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But you are in this together. I, I think my favorite gripe these days are the thing that makes my eyes roll the most. This is going to be my one, my one gripe for the morning, okay? I feel like my eyes just roll in the back of my head when I get on Facebook, maybe before church on Sunday mornings, and someone has posted a picture of their computer screen, and on the picture on the computer screen is like a, a video of, of some church in some distant land, trendy, worshiping, singing, and they say, and there's a cup of coffee or something, and they say, worshiping with vertical church in Oregon this morning. You know, like staying at home in my PJs, just going to church from home. No, you're not. No, you're not. Church is more than the message, brothers and sisters. Church is, is you guys together gathered here today, congregating, exhorting each other, worshiping together. And, and this, brothers and sisters, it's just not a message for people who are staying at home because, you know, I, I, I have those days, brothers and sisters, where, where I'm chasing the kids around. Isaac was driving me nuts this morning. And, you know, on those days, sometimes you're just like, man, I just want to stay home. Or I'm too tired. I stayed up too late. I'll just read my Bible a little extra this morning, you know. I'll read five chapters instead of three and declare it church for the day. You know, like, I, I, I get those feelings too, but I understand I haven't done church. I haven't done discipleship. I haven't done relationship if I haven't shown up. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. This is instruction to Timothy, and we've been in Timothy for a while, and um, you may vaguely remember some of those messages, uh, but Paul is instructing Timothy here. He's giving him specific words and specific instructions for the church in Ephesus. But if we think we can merely drop off these instructions in the first century and leave them there, we're wrong, because there's a lot for us right here. Within these verses, these two verses, even more specifically, is the heart of of discipleship. Discipleship is, 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 is personally, is, is us growing towards Christ. And the function of growth flows from Paul's words here and elsewhere. And, and, and in a church uh, in Ephesus that's marked with misdirection and with disruption and corruption, Paul is saying the, the, the Ephesian church needs to latch on to his faithful words of chapter 4 when he says, We have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people. Therefore, chapter 5, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, etc., etc. Mothers, young men, young women. This was a tumultuous church. And Timothy's expectation of his job was that he exhort, exhort the church there. 
And now in my text today, uh, it says encourage. If you have the NIV or the KJV, it may have a different word than exhort or encourage. David, what does yours say? Exhort. Yeah. Strengthen. Exhort. Encourage. But, but the, uh, a better word is exhort. And so when I think of the word exhort, uh, what I think of is, is pushing people towards God and pulling them away from sin. That's what exhort is. And that's what Timothy is supposed to do here. Push them towards God. Pull them from sin. That's what you must do in your daily relationships. His job as the leader of the church was to spur people towards holiness. Holiness is a word that you don't hear a lot in churches today. It's a weird word. It's an old word. It might make us think that holier than thou. Sometimes it has negative connotations with pride. But brothers and sisters, as sanctifying Christians, you are to be pushed towards holiness. And Timothy is to, to use wisdom in, in spurring these people towards holiness. Do not rebuke older men. So he, he's, he's not saying that if there's an older man who's teaching heresy and causing problems in the church that you shouldn't, just, you shouldn't say anything. But he's saying rather these people who are faithful to the message, encourage them. I am positive that there are people in this congregation that get on your nerves. And when I said that, you thought of that person. But if, we, if you're honest with yourself, do they make a right confession? Do they confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in spite of their quirks? In spite of those things that drive you crazy? Well, then don't rebuke that brother or sister. Exhort them and push them towards Christ. Seek them out to be in closer communion with them. So that you and them can grow towards the goal of Jesus Christ. That's what, what, what Paul is saying here. Push people towards God. And he's saying a whole lot more than that. And I'm sure you can see that in there. And when you preach this passage, you can point those things out. But there's a lot in these first two verses. There's a lot here for us. That if you bear the name church member or bear the name Christian, you have the same obligation that Timothy had to exhort, to encourage your fellow brothers and sisters towards Christ. So, brothers and sisters, are you encouraging those in this building to be closer to Christ? Because, like I said, this is no personal relationship. We're in this together. And I'm asking you that, and I'm really asking myself, because I have woken up in the middle of the night sometimes thinking, like, wow, I am not actively seeking to do spiritual good to anyone lately. I'm not actively looking to push towards holiness in other people's lives. And so I just ask myself some questions, and I'll ask you these questions as well. And I would encourage you to meditate on these and one would be, have I actively sought to do spiritual good to someone lately? I hope you can answer yes to that. I'm sure some of you can say no. And if that's the case, be honest. That's okay. Be honest. 
Have I recently shared Christ with another person? Sometimes we think that the work that we do in this church, you know, the the regular teaching and preaching of the word is merely uh, just for us. It's internal. We're just, you know, making, you know, discipleship is is just a, a word for Christians. But rather, really, it's it's discipleship and evangelism are the same things. to bring a lost person alongside you and just walk through the scriptures with them. That's evangelism, too. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't need to have a sign out on the street and handing out Bible tracts on the street. You may do so. But just disciple people, even lost people. Make disciples. So have I recently shared Christ with another lately? Could my current walk with Christ be a credible example for others to follow? I think that's most convicting for me. Is there a a mature brother or sister that I have latched myself onto lately to receive sound instruction? Now, I didn't say a more mature. I just said, is there a mature brother or sister that I've latched myself onto? Discipleship isn't just an authority relationship where someone's teaching you. It's you two together, walking this faith together. Have I made myself available to receive instruction from church leadership? So this really could mean coming to Sunday school, uh, showing up for church, obviously. This might even be presenting yourself to elders for counseling or for help walking through a certain situation in life. That's all discipleship. That's all discipling. And this one is the most passionate for me personally. Have I been willing to use my resources to do spiritual good towards other people? Whether that be my home my time, my finances, my job, my excellent skills, whatever those things may be, have I been using those things to do spiritual good towards other people? You guys have heard me mention it before, hospitality. There's no better place for you to do spiritual good towards other people than at your dining room table in your house. Living life together. Having conversations about matters of faith. Matters of politics, matters of parenting, whatever it may be. You can use your home to be a place where you do spiritual good to other people. It is your greatest resource that God has gifted you with. Yes, sir. There's no better place, no better place to do spiritual good towards other people than your home. Good question. Amen. That's fine. So I encourage you guys to continue. You're like thinking, what could I possibly do? Just open your home up. Maybe there's a younger family that needs to come into your home and and just see your wisdom and how you raised uh, and, and how they raised their kids. You know, that would be helpful. Faithfulness to this text, 1 Timothy chapter 5 brothers and sisters, is simple. Are you actively seeking to grow and to grow others by entering into this faith conversation with them? Some people call this accountability partners. I think that's a popular one in America. Uh, A more simple one, you you might even uh, call it just a mentoring relationship. Do you have a mentor in your life? I like what people in Great Britain call it in the church. They just call it reading together. Do you have someone that you're reading together with? 
That could be the scriptures. That could be a great book that points you towards Christ. Are you reading together with someone regularly? We must, brothers and sisters, be about the business of exhorting each other towards greater holiness. And brothers and sisters, your, your very spiritual life, it depends on this very thing. And I, I, can think of, I can think of that man in my life who, when I was a young Christian, came alongside me and poured into me and poured into me and poured into me. When it wasn't convenient, when I was having a bad day, when he was having a bad day, he still poured into me. And it's because of him that I stand before you today and that I held on to the faith. Because, brothers and sisters, I have sat in my bed. I have laid in my bed awake at night and thought, do I really believe this? Am I crazy for believing these sorts of things? And then I remember the faithful instruction poured into my life that spurred me on towards holiness and, and causes me to continue to run the race. Have you been that to someone else? Do you have that someone in your life? I love what Billy Sunday, evangelist, used to say. He said, the only way to keep a broken vessel full is to keep it under the tap. That's good, isn't it? The only way to keep a broken vessel full is to keep it under the tap. Brothers and sisters, have you been dragging the broken vessels around you to that life-giving tap of Jesus Christ. Keeping them full. We must be about the business of leading broken vessels to the gushing fountain of Jesus Christ's goodness. That is our job, brothers, in making disciples. And you might say, I'm not perfect. I, I can't do that. I'm not perfect. Well, well, neither are the other people in the room. Nobody is perfect. But brothers and sisters, grab the hands of the people around you and grasp through the darkness towards the light. Together. Together. It was, brothers and sisters, for a lack of sufficient exhortation that led the church in Ephesus to chapter 1 of the book, where they were being, being tossed about to and fro by what Paul called irreverent and silly myths. It was for a lack of discipleship, for a lack of exhortation, for a lack of encouragement that these brothers and sisters were falling prey to heresy and to wolves. They weren't moving each other towards deeper trust in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, I have no doubt that in the ten months that you have been without a pastor, you have probably heard some irreverent and silly myths from this pulpit. I promise you. Maybe not maliciously, but inadvertently in the very least. And if you are pulling each other towards the tap, the fountain of Jesus Christ together, you will recognize those things together. And when you're pulling each other towards Jesus Christ together, you will be able to overcome and notice those things. And, and you will be able to gird your defenses against the enemy. We oftentimes, brothers and sisters, and this includes myself, when I'm not regularly in the Word, we can be like dried up tumbleweeds being blown around the desert 
by the hot air that comes from our pulpits. That's just the reality of it, brothers and sisters. And, and, and I love what J.C. Ryle said. He was a pastor in the 1800s. He said in his book, Holiness of Many Professing Christians, he said this. He said, myriads of professing Christians nowadays seem utterly unable to distinguish things that differ. Like people afflicted with color blindness, they are incapable of discerning what is true and what is false, what is sound and what is unsound. If a preacher of religion is only clever and eloquent and earnest, they appear to think he is all right, however strange and heterogeneous his sermons may be. They are destitute of spiritual sense apparently, and cannot detect error. Popery or Protestantism? An atonement or no atonement? A personal Holy Ghost or no Holy Ghost? Future punishment or no future punishment? High church or low church? Broad church? Anything? Trinitarianism? Arianism? Or Unitarianism? Nothing comes amiss to them. They can swallow it all even if they cannot digest it. Carried away by a fancied liberality and charity, they seem to think everybody is right and nobody is wrong. Every clergyman is sound and none are unsound. Everybody is going to be saved and nobody is going to be lost. Their religion is made of negatives and the only positive thing about them is that they like, they dislike distinctness and think all extreme and decided and positive views are very naughty and very wrong. He's saying the people in the 1800s couldn't recognize error if it hit them in the face. I feel like he took a time machine and traveled to 2018 and sat in a lot of our churches. Where we can't recognize when someone is preaching something contrary to Scripture. Whether it be... Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer or James Dean or, or Jeff Villio, you must recognize from that list who are the wolves. And how you do that, brothers and sisters, is by discipling one another. Do not rebuke an older brother, but encourage him as you would a father, a younger man as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. There's something in these verses for all of us, but what I like the most is that he covers all of us. Whether you're old or young, whether you're a man or a woman, you are expected to be leading others to Christ. And if you are not doing that, you are not being obedient to the Scriptures. It's very simple. If my wife were here, I mean, I'd be sitting across the table from her at lunch today and she would probably look at me and say, you need to be probably discipling a little more yourself. I would agree. Let's turn now to verses 3 through 16 and don't worry, uh, I won't have as much to say about these. Uh, but they do, they do uh, matter for our first two verses. I, I have no doubt that uh, part of this text feels very relevant to some of you. If you are a widow in this congregation, you have probably uh, memorized these verses because they speak to you, right? Or if you have oftentimes 
found yourselves as a congregation with an increasing amount of widows. You've probably gone to this text to ask yourself, how do we deal with widows? And I think Paul is clearly sharing some wisdom in these verses, verses 3 through 16, um, about widows and, and what to do with them. He's sharing some wisdom that obviously applies to us today. And I don't think the, the wisdom here is concrete. I think it's specific to Ephesus, uh, but it's, it's useful for us because obviously uh, this church does not have an unlimited amount of money, right? And we don't have an unlimited amount of bread to give to every needy person who walks through these doors. But distilled very simply down a couple of thoughts that Paul is saying here. He's saying, first of all, if you're a widow and you have children then you need to go to those children and remind them who changed their diapers and spoon-fed them when they were a baby. That's the first thing he's saying. If you're a widow and you have a family, your family needs to be taking care of you. And if your family professed Christ, then that, that shouldn't even be a conversation that needs to be had. That should just be assumed. That if, if, if you have a widowed mother... In your midst, and you can't take care of your own mother, Paul says you've denied the faith. You are not producing the fruit that would say that you even have a faith. And so, in that sense, he's calling people to repentance in the Ephesian church. And I think that applies to us today. And for younger widows, he's he he's really saying that we need to not enter into as a church some permanent relationship with them that helps them to think that that they will be taken care of forever. Maybe they will be. But there should be no formal understanding of the sorts. Because Paul fears that they will become distracted from the faith, that they will become busybodies. I love the word busybodies. That's one of my favorite words in scripture. A busybody is someone who's just interested in all of your business. Every street has a busybody. You know, every town has a busybody. Someone that's up in your business. And he's saying these young widows, if, if, if they don't get to work doing something, raising a family, even getting a job, doing something, then they're going to fall into that sort of thing. And so the church should not enter into some forever commitment to them to take care of them. But in the moment, we should certainly care for those people who are, and he uses this word many times, truly widows. And I think this uh, wisdom applies for anyone seeking benevolence in the church, that we shouldn't just be a shotgun, just spraying bullets of goodness everywhere, but rather we need to be pointed and focused in where we're directing our resources so that, so that we are salty in the work that we do. And I, and I think it's obvious that from this text that we need to be making a regular practice of taking care of downtrodden people. But what might not be obvious from this verse, and this goes back to discipleship, brothers and sisters, is, is what I see in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me, and if possible, I don't know if you have it on your slides or not, if you could throw it up there. Verse 14, Paul says, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. He wants widows to marry and give the adversary 
No occasion for slander. But in the Greek, it doesn't stop there. If we read the Greek word, we attach the word us to the end of that. To slander us. To give the enemy no occasion to slander us. Take care of widows so the enemy cannot slander us. FCC, you are the us in that word. You bear good gospel fruit so that the enemy cannot slander you. And you bear good gospel fruit so that when you witness in the community, they have no reason to reproach you, to say, they're letting all of their widows go hungry. They don't care. Does that make sense? That's why we care for each other. So that we can go to the world and proclaim the gospel with integrity. And say that we have borne the fruit that says the gospel has changed us. Christ died, brothers and sisters, to save sinners. And we must take care of those amongst us in order to credibly proclaim that message. Matthew chapter 5 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what you do when you care for each other. So brothers and sisters, verses 1 and 2, we proclaim the gospel amongst each other and out in the community. And then the rest of these verses, really, verses 3 through 16, we protect the gospel message. We often don't think of it like that. But we proclaim it and we protect it. We preserve its integrity through the fruits that we bear. So when you're out in public and you're just yelling at the top of your lungs out of control at your child, which I've gotten close a few times, you're shaming the message of Jesus Christ. You're not protecting it. Caring for the widow, the orphan, the disenfranchised, that's preserving and protecting this message. That's calling sinners to repentance. That's what we do. You know, we don't, we don't hear of a brother or sister caught up in sin and just say, Oh, well. Oh, we lovingly call them back to the Father. This was really the heart of church discipline. I'll whisper it, church discipline. (laughs) It's like a cuss word in churches today, but up through the 1850s, churches regularly and increasingly practiced something called church discipline. And with that, there was a noticeable growth in the church. The church grew and grew and grew. And then to correlate with that, churches began to reject this concept of church discipline, calling people to repentance. And the church declined. The growth of the church declined. And it continues today, brothers and sisters. And I'm not just throwing this out to you. I'm I'm stating to you actual fact that churches that actively and regularly and corporately and intentionally called people to repentance, those churches grew. Until they abandoned those things. And then they shrunk. And now they have to have, they have, to have 
smoke machines and lights and crazy music just to attract the people in. When what keeps people is a call towards holiness and, and building a firm foundation on Jesus Christ and, and exhorting and, and telling people to, to leave those sinful ways and come towards the joys of Christ. That is, brothers and sisters, what is at stake here in 1 Timothy. I'm reminded of John the Baptist when he said to the people coming to him, boy, this will draw a crowd. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God could, if he wanted to, take these chairs and turn them into people to worship him. If we won't do it, he could do so. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do then? He said, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. And tax collectors said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers said, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, but be content with your wages. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. For God is able to raise up children even out of these stones. Brothers and sisters, that's where I'll leave it today. If you are like the people who were coming to John, wrapped up in their culture, saying, we're children of Abraham, we're children of Abraham, we're the people of God. If you're like those people, then you are truly lost. Do not be wrapped up in this culture called First Christian Church, but rather be wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who bled and died for you, whom you can be in union with, who the Holy Spirit can seal you to Him, not to call you towards more works or more grace, but rather the Gospel calls you to Christ. Union with Christ, the God of the universe. So will you this week commit to going to another brother and sister and saying, hey, let's go hand in hand together towards this man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glorious gospel. Thank you for uh, the wonderful work that you have done to know that that we do not have to be a people of all law. We do not have to be a people of all grace, but we can be a people of the man, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, here at First Christian, I, I pray that you would stir the hearts of these people this week to be in regular union and communion together, to build each other up, to seek to do spiritual good towards one another. We trust that you will be faithful to water those seeds that are planted. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.